When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank, thank you very much indeed for that welcome. Thank you all for coming. There's one thing I want to begin by saying. You are all beautiful, and I love you all. And I won't love you any more if you lose any weight, and I won't love you any less if you gain some. So throughout the evening, I know from personal experience doing, talking about weight, that at some point we will all be forced to look at our midriffs and wonder who we are and how we became who we are. And nothing about tonight should make anyone feel worse about themselves. But I do hope it will leave everyone a bit empowered to make some decisions about their health and their life. And that might help you love yourselves a little bit more, those changes that you can make. So hopefully we'll get there because we have fantastic people. So um, the, the event is called The Bittersweet Truth About What We Eat, Nutrition, Health and the Science of the Gut. And I think what will be lovely is we're going to dig into how the molecules that we put in our mouths affect the chemistry in our bodies and the bacteria that live in and on us, and how that science might interact with the way we choose to live our lives. So I'm going to introduce our speakers. Dr. Sarah Jarvis is an NHS GP, and quite why she is not at home in front of the telly with a box of wine and a curry, I have no idea. You deserve a medal for being anywhere other than crying in your bath. Um, She's also, I sincerely mean that, that, this is the hardest job in England. She's the clinical director of Patient.info. She's the resident doctor on the Jeremy Vine Show and on The One Show. She's the author of six books on health and medicine, including three books in the popular Four Dummies series, including Diabetes for Dummies. And Sarah, can I just ask you, how did you become interested in food and nutrition? I've always been interested in food and human nutrition. When I was at school, I was the little swatty girl uh, who was two years younger than everybody else in my class, so I was always much shorter, and I was um, fairly broad, all things being relative. So I decided I needed to do something about it. Uh, went to Cambridge and decided that um, I, was, I had the opportunity to spend a year doing something else and did food and human nutrition. And my, my undergraduate thesis was on the uh, dietary fibre and the etiology of disease. <laughs> and the rest is history, really. I love that. So what, it, it's, I decided to do something about my weight by going to Cambridge and writing a thesis. <laughs> right. Pretty much. Great, <laughs> great, good answer. Um, <laughs> professor Tim Spector. Um, uh, Tim is a professor of epidemiology at King's College London. He is a world expert. I say the world expert, but he, he's more modest than me. Um, in genetic studies of twins... 
He is the author of The Diet Myth, The Real Science Behind What We Eat, which many people have described as life-changing. Um, he leads the UK's largest open-source science project, British Gut, to understand the microbial diversity of the human gut. Tim, can you talk a bit about how you became interested in food and nutrition? Uh, well, I've been studying genes in the twins for, for years, as you know, and studied your genes, um, and, uh, and, and been discovering these, these things. But I didn't really get interested in nutrition until about six years ago at the top of a, uh, an Italian mountain when I actually got sick and um, ended up you know, with double vision and having various health problems and high blood pressure, and then very selfishly said, I want to find out what the best diet is for me. And at the same time, I was... Uh, started to write a book about it. And basically, that's the point. I, I realized how little we knew about the whole subject, how most of it was BS, and we'd been you know, misled. And uh, I wanted to really get into it and, and start to you know, help other people go on the same sort of journey as I did. I love that. So that trumps even Sarah's answer. Sarah went to Cambridge. You decided to enroll a huge cohort of twins and write a book. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> um, um, er, Professor Aaron Seagull, um, Iran Segal uh, is a computational biologist at the Weizmann Institute in Israel. He runs the Personalized Nutrition Project, which uses an algorithm to create personalized diets in order to lower blood glucose responses to food. Iran, can you talk a bit about how you became interested in this? Because your, your background is not uh, the same, uh, similar to the rest of us. Right. Yeah, so, so for one thing, my wife is a clinical dietitian, so these discussions have always been at home, but... But, but about five years ago, also, like Tim, from a personal interest, I'm an amateur long-distance runner, and I just became interested in what, what's the best diet for me. I started reading a lot of literature and, and, and books and so on, and, and, uh, and I really found, I was shocked at how much little science there is behind everything that is publicized to us about what we should eat. And so being a scientist, I thought this is actually an opportunity to find out and, and research what is really... Uh, healthy food for us, and, and uh, after five years, I can say that I think we came up on very surprising findings, which I'm happy to share with you tonight. Amazing. So um, it, we're looking forward to that. And it is interesting how much uh, personal interest the scientists working in this area have, um, and I, I count myself in that, in that group, at least with the personal interest. Now, is Gary, is Gary uh, available? Oh, he's here a bit. Gary, how are you? I am good. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Gary, I'm going to introduce you, and then, and then, sorry, you hadn't appeared until just now. Very nice to see you. So, um, uh, Gary Tobes is an award-winning American science and health writer, the author of the acclaimed new book, The Case Against Sugar. He's the co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative, and his previous publications include Why We Get Fat and The Diet Delusion. Gary, can you tell us a bit about how you got interested in food and nutrition? I, I can, and thank you. Um, I, I'm... Obviously, uh, well, one of the things I find fascinating is, is we all got into this because we didn't like the quality of the science that was out there to begin with, which is a science we all grew up on. I was an investigative journalist and uh, investigative science journalist. My specialty was controversial science. And in the late 90s, I literally stumbled into this controversy over whether uh, salt causes high blood pressure and uh, pretty quickly came to the uh, revelation that all the um, everything I had learned in my previous career that you had to do to get science right, to establish reliable knowledge, all the meticulous, rigorous, skeptical methodology that's required to get the right answer was considered kind of a luxury in public health and nutrition science. 
because it was just too hard to do, too expensive to do. And so we had embraced a lot of uh, mistaken assumptions or likely to be mistaken assumptions. And I spent the next 10 years of my life doing nothing but research to figure out what might be reliable knowledge and what continues to be assumptions. So what what, what I want to do now, thank you, Gary. What, what I want to do now is go through... Um, we want to get to the Q&A as quickly as possible because I think your, your questions should really drive the evening. But I'm going to go th- in, in a bit more detail with each speaker um, and, and, and get the panellists talking to each other. Uh, Gary, I'm going to start with you. Your, your work, in a way, to me, is absolutely extraordinary. Um, as, a, as a bit of journalism, as a bit of digging, you have been unbelievably thorough, wrestling with a, with a, with a body of scientific work that is extremely difficult to understand and where there are very intense vested interests. And I would say your articles in the New York Times, I remember reading your first article, big article in the New York Times, and that definitely changed my life and it changed the way I eat. And yet, I think at the heart of it, I do have some scepticism about whether or not you're right about sugar and insulin and calories. So can you talk us through the argument you're making in the case against sugar, your, your new book? I wanted to stop about three quarters of the way through your introduction and think it's not going to get any better than this. We should just stop now. Um, the, the, the gist of it is since the 1950s and 1960s, Uh, driven by some very questionable science, driven by some very questionable American science. We embrace some assumptions about what constitutes a healthy diet, uh, what the cause of obesity is. The primary assumptions were obesity is what we call an energy balance disorder. And in that sense, the pretty much the only way that foods affect our body weight is through the... um, Uh, caloric content or the digestible caloric content of these foods and anything else these foods might do regarding, uh, you know, hormonal physiological responses is irrelevant when it comes to whether or not we get fat. And then we focus on dietary fat as the cause of heart disease. And we spent the next 20 years from the 1977 through the early part of this century trying to put everyone in the world effectively on low-fat, low-saturated fat diets. And uh, as I did this research, I went back into even the 19th century and followed research on obesity and diabetes forward from that point in time. It became clear that... uh, from my perspective, clearly obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder. So as we get fatter, we don't get fatter as we get older just because we eat more calories. We get fatter as we get older because those calories have specific effects in our body that drive our fat cells to accumulate excess fat and hold on to it. And the refined grains and specifically the sugars in our diet have unique effects that fats and protein don't have that drive these phenomena. So my books, my first two books, targeted both sugar and refined grains. And my third book zeroes in on the specific effect of sugar and an attempt to answer a single, what I think vitally important question, which is we have obesity and diabetes epidemics that, that erupt worldwide whenever populations transition from a traditional diet, whatever that diet might happen to be, whether it's a Southeast Asian diet or an Inuit diet or a Maasai diet or an agrarian diet in the Himalayas. 
add a Western diet and lifestyle, you end up with obesity and diabetes and remarkable numbers, terrifying, unimaginable numbers of diabetes cases specifically. And the prime suspect has always been sugar when these epidemics erupt. And I'm making the case in this book, and I describe it as the prosecution's argument that it should remain sugar for a lot of different reasons, even though ultimately the experimental evidence is ambiguous. Perfect. Thank you very much. So um, the central thesis of what Gary's saying is that a calorie from sugar will induce hormonal changes in your body, particularly around insulin, that will cause you to lay down more fat and lead to long-term health problems in different ways to calories from other kinds of food. And so sugar in, in food is the central driver of the obesity epidemic. Now, w- what I want to do, Tim has... Um, t- Tim's, Tim's work is different, and I'm not sure Tim agrees. So can, I, can you pick up on that and say, say what you make of that, Tim? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what Gary's said and uh, is in his book about also the way the science has been done and the industry has played a role. So we, we agree on a lot of things. Uh, where I would take some uh, differences is, is picking on one food ingredient and saying that's the enemy, we kick that out, because... This is where fadism has, has, has come from, and if we, that's going to be true for some people, but not for others. Oh, absolutely, you know, you can have too much sugar and fizzy drinks and processed foods. We're all agreeing are wrong, but where you draw the line about whether should, people should stop eating rice or uh, pasta, totally, you know, the Italians and the Japanese do that and still manage to stay uh, pretty well because they have a balanced, uh, diverse diet, and I think. My, my whole, you know, for, but the tenet really of my book and my research was that we shouldn't be picky on one thing of good food. I mean, let's cut out processed foods, but of the real foods, um, we want a mixture of stuff and we want to have that huge diversity, which is really important for our gut microbes. So that's really where I, I'm coming from. And we, if we pick on one process and say insulin is the reason for it, that's naive to think that we know enough about the human body to just pick on that particular process and can for, I, can I for some you? people it will be bad but others not can i can i just pin you down on that though because i think um, many of you may may be aware of the sort of insulin carbohydrate hypothesis that 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 makes you fat and it's it's very seductive we know that insulin is almost exactly the same molecule as growth hormone we know that patients with diabetes who take more insulin gain weight do you think gary's right that um a calorie of sugar will make you fatter than a calorie of fat or protein um, I don't think there is sufficient evidence long-term that that is the case. And, Gary, um, can I pin you down on that and say, is that what you're saying? Uh, that's a, a, the simplest form of what I'm saying, yes, precisely. The argument, and again, I agree with Tim that the evidence isn't, doesn't exist long-term. Uh, again, I'm, making a, I'm taking this argument from a different philosophical perspective, by the 1960s, it was clear that insulin was, a fat, was the fattening hormone, the lipogenic hormone is how it was described in the 1960s, and we secrete insulin primarily to the carbohydrate content of the diet. And so anything that works to increase insulin uh, chronically over the course of a day will work to increase uh, the fat we mobilize. And then the question is, should this or should this not be the null hypothesis in the sense that 
you know, we created a theory of obesity, a theory of fat accumulation, this energy balance idea that completely leaves out all the hormonal enzymatic regulation of fat accumulation. It's like coming up with a theory about why our children grow that says they grow because they take in more calories than we consume and we're not going to pay any attention to growth hormones. Yeah. So, and, and, and Gary, can I just, yeah. so, but, but just to be, we're, we're going to come back to it. I'm sure lots of people will have questions for you. Right. The case for the prosecution, you have many smoking guns and you have identified right. a huge number of badly interpreted or badly conducted research, but you don't have the actual thing you need, which is the data that proves that sugar will make you fatter than, than any other macronutrient. Is, is that true? Abs- absolutely. And okay. yet I'm saying that we should assume that it does until we have evidence to refute it, rather than we should assume that it doesn't until we have evidence to, you know, definitive evidence to prove it. Different standards of uh, evidence. Perfect. We're, okay, we're going to come back to that. I'm going to keep moving. Sarah, what's your, um, what's your take on this? How would you translate this? Sarah's GP practice is in Shepherd's Bush, where I grew up. Um, but you have a catchment area of some really disadvantaged from um, socioeconomic groups. Mm. Can, can you talk a bit about how this would work for your patients, what, what this makes, making sense of that for them? What really worries me about this is that we've gone from one villain, saturated fat, to another villain, sugar. And the message that that's going to send to my patients is, as long as I avoid sugar, I can do exactly what I want. All the studies that have been done in the past have now been started to be looked at again and I think there's a very strong feeling that they were perhaps poorly done but we can't simply take those studies and extrapolate them later and say right now we've disproved them because for instance one of the big arguments was that people who were randomized that in other words two groups of people half of them were told right you go away and eat a high fat diet you go away and eat a low fat diet and we'll come back in 10 years and see which of you's had more heart attacks and how many of you have died as hard outcomes go death is kind of the hardest you get. Um, And it is very difficult to do studies like this because they do take a very long time. Of course, what happened, 10 years later, they came back and, in fact, there was no difference between the two groups. And that has been taken as the sort of poster boy evidence that actually saturated fat is not bad for you. Well, actually, what we now know is that nobody took any notice of what they ate instead of the high-fat diet. And if I say to my patients, stop eating fat, I know that half of them will promptly go away and substitute it with refined carbohydrates and sugar. So we also know that if you do directly substitute fat for refined carbohydrates, exactly the same thing happens. You don't get any reduction, but you don't get any increase in heart disease. Now, what Gary's saying is sugar is the bad guy, and therefore, his argument, by his, um, according to his argument, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, if you stop eating the sugar, actually you should be better off with the saturated fat. You're not. Whereas, if you look at studies which have gone on for 30 years, followed 120,000 people, you see that people who substituted, instead of having either saturated fat or refined carbohydrates, had instead plant proteins or unrefined carbohydrates, or all the things that we see as being, quote, good, you can reduce the risk of heart disease. So I think what I'm saying is sugar is bad, absolutely no question. Sugar contributes to obesity, absolutely no question. Saturated fat, I think, is also bad. There is good evidence that saturated fat increases insulin resistance, that it it makes it more difficult for your body to deal with insulin or to respond to sugar. And that means it produces more insulin, which does what? Makes you put on more weight, makes you prone to type 2 diabetes. My patients don't don't eat nutrients 
they eat food. And do you think, I mean, I notice as well that people get, uh, just get fatigued with the entire thing. And when you have the entire public health community saying, as they did when I was young, don't eat saturated fat, eggs are bad for you, butter's bad for you, and then it flips and suddenly everyone's saying eggs are good and you can put butter in your coffee in the morning... <laughs> You have this weird moment. Of, I, think, I think a decent number of your patients will just go, these doctors haven't got a clue. Oh, uh, and they make it up as they go along. <laughs> I, and I'm you, going to ignore You got it wrong it. last time, yeah. Doc. Why should I, I listen to yeah, you now? Yeah. Tim, I, I just want to come, come on to your work. Tim's, Tim's been working on the gut biome, which I think if you've read a newspaper in the last couple of years, you will be somewhat familiar with. But can you talk about what, what this is and how does your research affect what we should and shouldn't be eating? So the, the, the gut microbiome is basically this huge community of microbes, 100 trillion of them, most of them in the lower part of the intestines, the colon, that really we've only discovered in the last five or six years what's become generally well-known, and this is an extra organ of our body that weighs the same as our brain. When you stick it all together, there's more cells than it, cells and more, uh, there's more microbes than cells in our body, and there's about 200, 300 times more genes. So these, each of them has a gene that is like a little chemical factory pumping out all kinds of enzymes and chemicals that do all kinds of stuff, making us uh, more hungry, uh, making us more depressed, more sad, breaking down our food in different ways, and affecting our immune system. And so up to now, we've totally ignored this organ, and this is why we've been obsessed with these other insulin-type models of the, of the pancreas and whatever, because our limited knowledge. And now we're, we're understanding this new universe... It's, un it's telling us that everybody has a very different microbiome inside them. Uh, we, vary only, we only share about 20% of our microbes, whereas we share 99.9% .9 of our genes. And this, pers this personalization, this difference between us, is why some people will do better on a low-sugar diet and others on a low-fat diet, and why we've got so confused over this. And also, how, knowing how these microbes uh, change our, our foods and how we've been slowly killing them off with our bad food. Our processed foods are killing them off and our antibiotics have been killing them off and our narrow range of diversity has been killing them off. So people on fad diets are also reducing our microbes we have in us. By studying our 10,000 10, twins, we've found that um, the more plant diversity you have, the higher fiber you have, the more different microbes you have, the greater diversity, and that's a huge health benefit, and that goes really throughout everything. If you can get that diversity up, you're going to do well. So we're beginning to understand why we've got everything so wrong, and most of it is down to our gut microbiome, our, our these microbes that are so different. And we've studied these twins and even found uh, that you can, there are certain microbes that uh, will induce... Uh, Leanness that will, you will never find in overweight people. You only find in skinny people. And you take these bugs like Cristensonella and you take them from the twins and you put them into mouse models, you can stop them getting fat. And this, these, these discoveries have been repeated many times. They're very, you know, they're very robust. And this is just the tip of the iceberg we're seeing. So suddenly our whole lack of knowledge and, and poor science before in food is being transformed by this amazing new world, and I think, it's, I think everyone should know about it. It's, it's, it's so striking to me. I mean, I didn't go to medical school that long ago. I graduated in 2002, and we did not mention 
the gut biome, except maybe in the in rare conversation about chemotherapy, radiotherapy, but basically we never talked about well, they were it. Evil. And, and, Microbes uh, were evil, and, you had to eradicate yeah. them, and yeah. you know, a good doctor was one that used as many antibiotics as yeah. possible yeah. and got rid of the whole lot. So the, it's hard to find anyone in this room who's never taken an antibiotic. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible. We're, and this has been killing off our gut microbes. We're losing our diversity. Compared to our African ancestors, we've lost about 40% of them that will never come back. And these are reducing our ability to fight infections, allergies, and contributing to the obesity epidemic. So, Gary, can I just pick up on this? Because this does seem to be an enormously important point. When you drill into sugar and hammer away at reducing the sugar in people's diets and aren't too focused on what they might be replacing sugar with, which is what Sarah's emphasising, Tim's work really seems to undermine that idea. I mean, the, the importance of a diverse diet. How do you... I know, I know they're not totally mutually exclusive, but you don't, you don't emphasise that very much. You, you, you've become a bit of a one-molecule guy. How do you... Res- <laughs> Uh, one trick pony, I would argue. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of issues. I, I don't think, Tim, again, what I want to know is what caused the obesity and diabetes epidemics. We, the only way to prevent an epidemic is to unambiguously identify the cause. And I do not think that Tim is arguing that some of these epidemics were caused by people eating too much fat and some of them caused by eating too much sugar. I think he would think, as I do, being a scientist, a fan of Occam's razor, that he would assume that whatever caused one epidemic is probably the cause well, hang on. of We've got him them. here. Let's ask him. Tim, what are, you, what are you saying? I mean, it's a combination of factors. I think everyone will agree there isn't a single factor that has caused this you know, doubling or tripling of obesity in the last well, I, No, years. but Gary wouldn't agree. Gary no. says it's yeah, sugar. I, wouldn't, I clearly you, wouldn't but agree. You, so no. Ga- and Gary thinks that you, you, you agree on this, but do you, do you think there's a, if, if you've got the, 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 the overweight people or the obese people of the UK, are a decent portion of them fat because of too much fat and a decent portion of them fat because of too much sugar? Or would you say, yeah, it's, it's mostly sugar? No, I think uh, it's a combination of factors, really? and we mustn't pick on fat or sugar. It's probably what they're not eating in their diets that would protect them against this, what we used to eat, that old-fashioned, you know, uh, changing our, our foods, not eating regularly, not worrying about glucose spikes, having long periods without food, get the, all of these things to create a really good microbiome environment that didn't have antibiotics, didn't have processed foods, and then you're able to deal with uh, food in a much more efficient way. Um, so I, I don't think there's a simple glib answer to say this is the cause of all our problems, but I think you've got to take a more holistic approach and realize that if you cut out one food, you know, you've got to replace it with another. And if we focus on what we should be eating rather than you know, what having an occasional Coca-Cola uh, is, is so deadly, then I think we're missing the point. And how much of it we should be eating, because we haven't even got on to portion size yet. No. You know, we are much less physically active than we used to. The average portion size, if you buy an individual chicken pie, it's 70% bigger than it was 15 years ago. So actually, to an extent, because it's happened gradually, I think the public has been fooled. And of course, the more you eat, the more you need to eat. Or the more bad food you eat. Yeah. Iran... Uh, you're running the Personalised Nutrition Project, which is a, which is a pretty extraordinary... Um, this feels like the future of medicine and science in many ways. Can you talk to us about how it works, what it does, who comes in, what do you do to them, what do they do to you? Sure. So, <laughs> so, so, so it's actually all of these arguments that motivated the project because, uh, because we argue a lot 
And when I was reading the literature, I felt that actually what we're missing is, is, is data, and we're missing hard data. And as a computer scientist, I'm, I'm a great believer in data and in unbiased, uh, unprejudiced analysis of data, and that's what this project was, was all about. So the first thing that we asked ourselves in this project is, is what should we measure as a marker of healthy nutrition? And uh, usually when I, when I talk about this work, I have to motivate and explain it a lot, but actually this was a great build-up and setup because as I was reading, um, and, and actually Gary Taubes' book on, on good calories, bad calories was a big inspiration for this, I came to realize that actually these spikes of glucose which induce secretion of insulin um, is, is, is really maybe perhaps not the only factor, but definitely a very major factor that could affect our health. It affects our, our weight gain because insulin signals cells to store excess sugar as, uh, as fat. Uh, it's definitely related to diabetes because that's how it's actually defined. But then there's a lot of epidemiological research showing that it's linked to many, many other diseases. And so the one thing um, that we decided to focus on is, is post-meal glucose responses. And, and not less importantly, because it's also very easy to measure it. So what I mean by that is, is um, as you know, your, your blood sugar levels change mainly after you eat, and in healthy people, mainly in the two hours after you eat a meal, your blood sugar, your body digests the carbohydrates in the meal and releases them to the bloodstream where your blood sugar levels go up, and then there's secretion of insulin whose job is to reduce the uh, blood sugar um, levels. So, um, and and so, you've got some slides of that, right? Yeah, I'll show you that okay, in a cool. moment. So, so what we've done is we've measured, we've took, we, take, we took 1,000 people. Uh, these were random people just coming in, which actually turned out to be fairly representative of the population in Israel in terms of obesity and diabetes and so on. And uh, we've put a continuous glucose monitor on each of them. So that measured glucose levels every five minutes for an entire week, 2,000 measurements per person, 2 million glucose measurements in the study, and each had a mobile app. They logged all their meals. So in the end, we had 50,000 meals with full nutritional values. And we could analyze and see what... And, that, and that's, that's big data. That's a lot of data. We could analyze what happens. And, and we found a few pretty striking observations. The first one was that actually when the same person eats the same meal on different days, the response is very similar, very reproducible. But when you give the same food to different people the response is dramatically different. We had people eating, um, eating bread, eating ice cream, having essentially no change in glucose levels, and others having huge spikes in glucose levels. And it's not just that people who had spikes had spikes for everything. We had people with reverse responses, some eating spiking for rice but not for ice cream, some the other way around. Um, and, and so that was, that was the first striking observation, which basically told us that even before I tell you what our solution was, it, 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 it tells us that uh, general dietary advice is only going to be very limited in its ability to normalize blood sugar levels in people. So that was, that was a very striking observation, I would say. Although in retrospect, when we think about it, this should have been our null hypothesis, also because of what Tim said, because of what uh, was mentioned here, that, that we're all different. Our genes are different, our microbiome is different, so it would be even a miracle if we all responded the same way. So what we then did is to integrate parameters about different people. Uh, the most novel component that we integrated was the microbiome composition of people. And we showed that we could develop an algorithm that basically took ba many basic parameters, clinical parameters about people, their microbiome composition, and predict with very high accuracy how they would respond individually 
uh, to meals. So how each kind of food, not, not individual ingredient, but each kind of food would affect their blood glucose. Exactly. So, we, you... measured, so we measured complex meals. Okay. Anything that people eat in real life, that's what we measured, that's what they reported, and that's what we were able to then, to then predict. And, and the final step of this, of this uh, 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 project was to actually go and intervene and design diets for people, personalized diets for people, that uh, would try and normalize their blood sugar levels, and that's what I want to show the slide on very briefly. Um, so what we had was uh, we took new, uh, a set of people, and we asked the algorithm to design for each person two diets, uh, identical in calories. In fact, every meal was identical in calories. But in one case, we asked the algorithm to predict meals that would spike their glucose levels, and in the other meals that would normalize their glucose levels. And, and the diets were very surprising. Some people, um, that some people had ingredients that were put on their, on their spiking diet that were put on the diets, the normalizing diets of others. And to just show you that, that these diets are really not uh, trivial, um, if we can show the slide, this is actually, uh, these are actually two diets given to one participant. And you can see what was selected by the algorithm as their good diet and what was selected as their bad, bad diet. Uh, your average nutritionist would probably not prescribe these, this diet as the good diet, including the ice cream. But we put this pre-diabetic individual on this diet, um, and we monitored their glucose levels for one full week on, on the good diet and one on the bad diet. And the next slide that I'll show you was, for us, perhaps the most striking result that came out of the study. And I remind you that every meal that was given to this person was identical in calories. And, and this, these were the glucose levels that we saw in this participant, same person, different weeks, same amount of calories in, in every meal. And what you can see here is that in red is the bad diet. This is the diet that the algorithm predicted would cause spikes, which indeed it does. And, and it, it reaches abnormally high glucose levels, indicating that this participant is pre-diabetic. But on the good diet, we achieve full normalization of uh, blood glucose levels. And so, and so I do subscribe to this um, uh, carb and insulin hypothesis, but I also believe that there is definitely a degree of personalization in knowing which foods personally for you would spike blood sugar levels and which would not. And this is based, I believe, on an un unprecedented amount of data of 50,000 meals that we collected, which clearly demonstrates that different people respond very differently to food the microbiome being a major component driving this. And in order to... So you do actually have a, a very significant pathological endpoint here of a blood glucose in a pre-diabetic individual. What you don't have, as far as I'm aware, is that this person isn't losing any, date, at least, uh, any weight over this period of time. Um, and you also don't know about long-term progression in terms of um, blood sugars and diabetes. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's a great point. This study was four years of almost uh, more than half of my, my group uh, uh, to, to get to this point. These were one-week interventions. What we are doing now is now we are doing dietary interventions in both pre-diabetics, type 2 diabetics, and gestational diabetes to follow up long-term and compare these personalized diets to the standard of care and we're going to look at all of these different endpoints that you mentioned. And according to you and Gary, um, you would both expect that these people would lose weight, that they are releasing, they must be releasing um, 
well, I don't know. Are they releasing less insulin? Would you expect them to lose weight? Are they releasing more insulin and, and lowering their blood sugar? What's, what's... So, so, um, so, so this is actually exactly what we're going to be testing in the research. And the two different groups in each of these studies, we're going to be giving them exactly the same amount of calories, one being the standard of care diet, the other being our personalized diet, that hopefully should be giving them foods that with the same amount of calories don't cause as much spikes in blood sugar levels, therefore don't cause as much spikes in insulin, and therefore we believe, based on all the evidence, um, that that would cause, um, would induce more weight loss and would also get improvements in, in fatty liver, in diabetes parameters. And, and so now, I, now, I know you've got some very interesting stuff to say about the biome as well and the mechanisms behind this. I'm conscious of the time and the need for questions. I just want, I, I know, Sarah, that you wanted to follow this up. The world of personalised medicine is very seductive if you're on Kensington Gore, in Shepherd's Bush, it feels well, a little different. On the one hand, um, can I have your details? Because I'd really like to come and see you. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you said it took you and your group four years to get this data on 1,000 people. The simple fact of the matter is we cannot realistically get this for everybody. And for my patients, their diet is more likely to be determined by what's in the reduced style at little than by what they have been told is a really good thing for them to have. You know, we know that, very sadly, processed, refined carbohydrates, sugars, high-fat foods are, on the whole, much, much cheaper than the alternatives. And I can go on till I'm blue in the face about how easy it is for them to go down to Shepherd's Bush Market and get a great big bowl of vegetables and it only costs a pound, and they've got all that time because they're not working, so actually they could go home and prepare it themselves, and they don't listen, funnily enough. Instead, they go home and they spend all their time on what one of my friends described as the Japanese babysitter, the PlayStation. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the, the kids are on there from morning, noon, and night. They're not doing any exercise. They're underestimating the amount that they're eating because they sit and they do something else. They never sit down together as a family and eat. And we know that that means that you're more likely not to graze. We know that grazing is associated with underestimating your calories. We know that people who graze are more likely to be overweight. So, you know, it's fantastic. Fantastic, and yeah, in an ideal world, great. But in the meantime, I think we've got to go with what we've got. Lovely. So at this point, we're, we're, we've got 40 minutes left. And at this point, I think, if you're sitting in the audience, you don't know if sugar's good or bad. <laughs> you're not quite sure about saturated fat. You're definitely not sure if you need a totally personalised diet or whether a bit of common sense should prevail. And you're wondering how to look after the brand-new four-pound massive organ, your gut microbiome. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. That you previously didn't know anything about. And I can tell you, I can tell you it is not easy trying to sift all this out. In addition to which, we're not sure how much some of this affects our general health and how much of it affects weight loss. And of course, I think, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading the crowd wrong, I think almost everyone would kill their own grandmother to lose a few pounds, and no one really cares about their long-term health. So we've got this very, very big, big, uh, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, rightly or wrongly, rightly or wrongly. Um, so what, what, what we're going to do now is, is throw it open, um, throw it open to, to, to you all and see what you want to hear about. We have microphones roving around. There is a standing mic at the back. So, oh, there it is. There's a standing mic at the back, which if you've got questions, you can uh, come up. Um, and then we've got, okay, so the, there are numbers being held up. That means, does that mean that I go around? I think it means I go around in the order of the numbers. So we're going to take three questions um, at a time, and then I'll sort of sift them out among the panel. So question one is over here. Oh, can we wait for the mic? Can we wait for the mic? Sorry, sorry, sorry. The numbers aren't did you find any correlation between the blood type and the different ways that people reacted to these diets? We're going to take them. We can take them one at a time. Thank you. Question two. So, so my question is probably most to Iran. I mean, I'm a computer scientist myself, and uh, two years ago I had some bad news. You can say that I had diabetes, and my A1C was 11.3, and it, it looked pretty bad. You know. And, I was told I couldn't control it with just diet. But the good news was that my body, of course, is a very good measuring apparatus because with such a high level of diabetes, I could immediately measure all the consequences of the food I had. And what I noticed is that I could, without actually having to make a big effort, uh, control it by food, I just had to eat the right food. So my, my question is, that what I, what, I, what I did notice was that the ad, ad, advice they gave on many diabetes sites, American sites and other things, that would be absolutely... Uh, What's the, we need the question. What's yeah, the question? My, question? my question is, how come that the advice you get from all these diabetes sites, at least in my case, would be completely crazy to eat? I would, my, my blood sugar would go up to 20 or something. If I, for example, had muesli, oh, you just have 50 grams of muesli and just this and that and the other. And Lovely. So, so the question is, why is the advice on diabetic information sites why so Why is it bad? so misleading? Because I so find misleading? it extremely misleading. And, I could see, and the diet showed up there. Lovely. It's a lovely question, and yeah. we're gonna, we'll farm it out. Thank you. 
So we, I should have, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I should have framed that up. Can we get que- questions that are quick? Number three. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes. All of the speakers, I think, have presented um, very professionally a certain focus. Um, but they're all concerned, for the most part, with the reaction of the body to consumption, food and drink consumption. There's only Dr. Jarvis who has referred passing in, in passing to weight, to exercise. Um, I'd like to hear more about what all of the speakers think about the role of exercise and also one dimension, which hasn't been mentioned at all, which is the effect of mental and emotional stress factors. Fantastic, that's great. So that's mental, emotional stress and exercise. Thank you. So we've got three questions. Eran, can you remember the first question? Because yeah. I can't. Yeah. Lovely, good. <laughs> can, you, can you repeat it for everybody else? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so I'll, I'll take the first two. That, so the first one was on, was on uh, blood type. So actually blood type, we, we did not uh, find any uh, correlations to, in responses to food. As to the question of, of why is advice... Um, to diabetics so misleading. Um, so so I, I don't know why that is. I, I think it's, ba- it's because, this, again, it goes back to the science that it's based on is, 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 not, is, is, not, is not that good. And I can tell you one specific advice that we had a major work studying artificial sweeteners, which um, we published several years ago. And what we showed in that work, and, and I should say, because it relates to your question, artificial sweeteners are recommended officially by the American Diabetes Association as something to eat instead of, uh, instead of sugar as a way to control blood sugar levels. And what we showed is actually not only is, is it... Uh, is, is it so what, what we showed is that con- consumption of artificial sweeteners actually not only um, pre- uh, does not prevent diabetes, but in fact it can induce diabetes. And the way by which we showed that is that uh, consuming artificial sweeteners can alter your gut bacteria such that when we took that altered gut bacteria and transplanted that into mice that are germ-free, that we grow in bubbles without uh, any germs, we transplant those uh, microbiome grown on artificial sweeteners, that can induce diabetes in the recipient mice. So, so, so definitely I think there's a lot of misleading evidence. I don't know why, but, but artificial sweeteners is... I know why. Can I get, it would be lovely to get one bit of dogma nailed down this evening. Um, can I just get <laughs> artificial sweeteners? Gary, do you, can you just give me a yes or no? Uh, maybe. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Tim, what do you think? Uh, I agree with Aaron. Uh, you know, that whether they're as bad as, um, as, as just taking sugar... Uh, I'm not sure, but they're certainly much worse than taking water, and they're not, they're not an inert, free lunch, as they're claimed. So we, we need to do much more proper work on this. And Sarah, you're nodding. Yeah, increasing evidence, I think, not just with type 2, but also with LADA, so which is kind of type one and a half diabetes, yeah. if you like. Um, however, I would agree that I think they're not as bad as pure sugar. But a cup of tea would be better than um, a can of Diet Coke. Oh, I hope there's no one from Coke here. Or Diet Pepsi, there we go. Well, I, can, I, can, I can just say that... In, Green in, tea. In, in, Green tea. In, in, in our experiments, and, and we, cert- we certainly said that, that more experiments and more long-term and large-scale experiments in humans are needed, but in our experiments in mice, adding sugar to the drinking water of mice had no effect on them, but adding artificial sweeteners induced diabetes in the recipient mice. That was our... Fantastic. And mice aren't people. Mice are not people. Mice, <laughs> mice in true. the lab aren't even mice. 
but um, but still, that 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 so that we research be is compelling. About artificial sweeteners. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If anyone works for aspartame or anything, we're sorry, sorry. Um, okay. Lovely question up here about um, exercise and also mental health and and kind of psychosocial health. Um, Sarah, can I turf this to you first of all? Um, one of my favourite studies in all the world is a study called the Diabetes Prevention Programme. Now, Gary is not going to like this study Ooh, because although go. it was a randomised controlled trial, it wasn't double-blind. And a double-blind trial is supposed to be the gold standard where studies are concerned. And double-blind means neither the doctor nor the people in the study know which side of the group they're in. And in the Diabetes Prevention Programme, they took a group of people who had pre-diabetes. They divided them into three. One group, they gave, quote, standard advice, which was to slap them on the wrist, tell them they've been bad boys and girls and come back in a year and we check if you've developed diabetes yet. The next group they took and they gave them a tablet, metformin, and the third group they randomised to four hours of exercise a week. Now, I defy most people not to know which group they're in. (laughs) Consequently, of course, it was not a double-blind trial, but the results were extraordinary. When they randomised the group to exercise and to the advice which was the standard advice at the time, which was a combination of low-fat diet, um, uh, slightly reduced calories, trying to get them to lose weight by 5%, and also motivational interviewing, which was kind of getting them to choose their own health goals. But I think the exercise played a huge part and probably soluble fibre in addition. They actually reduced the likelihood of them developing diabetes over the next four years by 58%. Mm. And obviously, there are all sorts of lies, damn lies, and statistics, but because the actual risk was so high. That meant that for every four people who increased their level of exercise, they had two and a half hours of personal trainer a week, they tried to get to four hours a week, they could reduce, for every four people who did this, one of them would not have diabetes four years later who otherwise would have done. I'm a big fan of exercise, absolutely. You know, there's the, the, evidence, there's the evidence, exercise is good for you is really incontrovertible, but the evidence that exercise helps you lose weight is really not there long term. So, so I think you know, there, there's a mixed message there. I think we should all be exercising, but we shouldn't at the moment be relying on exercise to sort out our obesity epidemic. And so this is this false thing, oh well, if we build a school playground we'll get rid of uh, the exercise epidemic. There's absolutely no evidence uh, for that. It's very, it's, it's, okay. you, can see, I mean, you can see the frustration of going to your doctor and saying, what should I do? I'm overweight. And they say, exercise. Good. Will that help me lose weight? No, it won't. But you should do it anyway. Um, I love your question because uh, it, it, you, you raise the things that we miss when we talk about the molecular bio- biology and the, the um, endocrinology, the, 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 the sort of hard science. I, I think mental health and psychosocial aspects of weight loss, and we, we're talking about multiple endpoints here. We've got diabetes and cardiovascular risk, but, but weight loss is the kind of linchpin of the conversation because it's so seductive. It's such an important topic personally for so many people. Um, I don't think it's really possible to lose weight without changing your life. It is very, very hard to lose weight without making yourself, in some ways, a more empowered and happier person. And I think a huge number of diet books, and I, I, I would, I would um, exclude the, t- Tim's and Sarah's as well from this, <laughs> but a huge number of diet books focus on the ingredients you put in your mouth and not why you eat Chinese takeaway every, every night. And I, I got to 19 stone because I was miserable, 
and it was not really focusing. I focused a lot on what I ate, but mainly I just tried to make myself a bit happier and tidy my life up. Tidying your house is probably a better way of losing weight than, foc- according to me, than focusing on how much sugar is in your diet. But sorry, Gary. Can I, uh, we'll can come I back to a couple of issues? First of all, the problem with trials like the diabetes prevention trial is that it's not just not double blind, it's uncontrolled. So when you ask people to exercise four hours a day and change their diet, they will change other things in their diet as well, including what you ask them to put in their mouth. So these people, more than any of the other subjects in the experiment, are less likely to eat sweets and drink soda and drink beer and drink desserts, eat desserts, and they might do it because they think they're cutting calories or they might do it because they're trying to be healthy, and that's what any of us would do to try to be healthy. But the problem with this kind of trial is that you can't tell at the end whether they lost weight or they prevented diabetes because they exercised or because of all the things they did because they knew they were supposed to work to be healthy every day that the other subjects in the trial might not have done. Okay, I mean, to be fair on Sarah, she did make that point. Yeah, so, but that's not that it's not double blind, it's uncontrolled. That's a critical point. We have to know why it worked. And my issue with some of this other stuff about exercise, about happiness, and is it implies that people have a profound physiological disorder you know, 20 to 40 to hundreds of pounds of excess fat got that way because they just couldn't stop eating, you know, Chinese food every night or because they were unhappy or because they were stressed. And it makes them feel worse about themselves when part of the argument with this, rather than call it the insulin carbohydrate hypothesis, call it the hormonal regulatory hypothesis. Those people have a physiological issue that has to be addressed. And maybe if they were happier, they'd be happier about their physiological issue, you know, tens to hundreds of pounds of excess weight. But to imply that they got that way by being unhappy or by being lacking willpower is, to me, the the single biggest crime with this energy balance way of thinking. Do you know, I feel so much better now because I thought I was the only person who didn't know what I was talking about. Apparently, you don't either, Zan, so oh, I good, feel okay. much better now. <laughs> okay, sorry, Sarah. Every day is a school day. Um, okay, good. Well, well thank, thank you for that, Gary. We're, we're going to come back. So there was a, there was a lady who, was, who had to sit down. Can we, can we get you, and then we'll, we'll, get, we'll get two more. Hi, it's a question for Tim about our gut health. And you were talking about eating a more diverse range of food. But can you say a bit more about that, how you can improve your gut health? Is it through bone broth? Is it through probiotics? Or is it just diversity? I'd be, like Perfect. to say a bit more. I mean, by his book is the short answer. But, but OK, so Tim, Tim's going to talk about how to improve gut health. Number two. Is the personalisation of gut microbiome an argument for eating not just seasonally, but locally to our food culture, i.e. should a Greek person stick to Greek food rather than eating Chinese food? And is the globalisation of our food a contributing factor to obesity? Oh, I love that. Worship the local gods. Okay, that's great. (laughs) That's great. So, um, God help us if we have to stick to English food. (laughs) So, lovely. So, so between Tim Tim and Aaron, can you you parse those out? How do we do it? What what should we do? It's a very brief advice about general... So... Uh, the general advice is eat lots of fiber. We probably need to eat double the amount of fiber. We've lost that. We used to just think fiber was just to stop constipation. And no one is promoting fiber because there's no real money in it. 
and that's a big problem in, in the last 20 or 30 years. So I think we'd all agree more fibre. Just say what is so you ever, say more fibre, but what why? is that? Is that a bag of kale a day? What, what does it look like? What, what, do you, what, are you, what is on your plate? Uh, what is on my plate? Uh, I have uh, lots of vegetables with my meals. I have... I have um, uh, it's, it's, it's taking meat off the plate allows you to put more vegetables on the plate. That's okay. one thing I've learned. You can't get all your fibre from fruit because that's really bad for you, and it's, you don't get as much fibre from the fruit. But because so there's too much sugar in fruit? Is that if you ate well, enough fruit to get the fibre? If you just ate bananas, you know, uh, you, you, you would get too much sugar, and it's not a balanced way to eat okay. it. And I think, you know, we've explained that we don't want to do too much of everything. So the best way to get fibre is... Um, through a range of vegetables that you vary every day, and it's not the same vegetables, not just eating potatoes, it's eating potatoes and sweet potatoes and, and lentils and mixing it all up in, a, in, a, in as much diversity because each of the more fiber you have that's diverse, the more different species you're actually helping in your gut. And I think we've got to go back to this Mediterranean style uh, eating that you know, Iran knows all about, that is, you know, uh, that's combined with these products. So lots of fiber, diversity. Fermented foods we've forgotten about. Um, I love this last question, actually. My, my feeling, and I will, I will ask the others, but my feeling is uh, the Greeks know how to eat Greek food and the Italians know how to eat Italian food. If you go to Italy, they don't serve you garlic bread with the lasagna. We invented that in England. And, and so uh, we put mayonnaise on the side as well. So I, I, I actually think eating... It's not just the Greek-style food. If, if you go and eat food in that place with those people, with those specific ingredients in the way they eat it, if they're a thin group of people, the Japanese, the Greeks, the Italians, um, it's probably something more than just the ingredients. Um, but I don't know if that's... What, what do you make of it, Sarah? I would tend to agree. I was working not that long ago in Saudi Arabia where they have a 22% incidence of, of um, type 2 diabetes oh. and now 98% wow. of people with diabetes have got type 2, which kind of dwarfs the UK population who think we're bad. But interestingly, they haven't changed what they eat that much. They are still eating a fairly similar Saudi Arabian diet. They are eating more sugar than they were, but they're just eating so much more of it and exercising so much less. And, of course, they, whether you believe in the theory of the thrifty gene or not, they, you know, we know that people who have, in terms of evolution, come through great periods of famine tend, on the whole, as we've seen with the Indians, to be more prone to putting on weight, and particularly intra-abdominal fat, which is, of course, metabolically active and what's so, what's so damaging for all of us. If you then take people like that, who are very efficient at um, storing and using energy and not expending too much of it, and you give them vast quantities of local, locally sourced food, they will still become vastly overweight. Right. Plenty of fat people in Greece as well. Um, Lovely. So we've got we've got um, uh, we've got more more questions. So uh, could we got we've got one on the corner here. Could we? Oh, sorry. Here we are. I'm not I'm not running this very well. Here we go. Let's, let's start with you. Uh, coming back to that point earlier about stress, um, did you, Erin, in the research you did, uh, look at groups who were in a parasympathetic state compared to a sympathetic state when they were eating their food? Then look at the blood glucose after. Did those two states have any effect on glucose levels? The two states, sorry? A parasympathetic tone and sympathetic tone. Well, so, so the question is whether, whether that also induces uh, hormonal responses that would also uh, cause you to, um, uh, to, to, to have uh, altered hormonal balance and then, um, and then by that also 
uh, induce these these spikes and and um, and, uh, and and like I said, we, we've measured stress as reported by individuals, and we saw some some relationships. Yeah. We got, we, got, we got time for another three. I think the final three questions. Th- final three quick questions. We're, uh, great. Lovely. We've got, we got one here. Um, just uh, the food companies, are they responsible um, to the point where we got, we've reached a point with the tobacco companies that there was the statistics that people were dying because of smoking. So the tobacco companies were taxed for that reason and patients took stock. How close are we, or are we never going to reach that point because the food industries have got so much power? When are we actually really going to take that seriously, that there are the stats that certain foods and lifestyles and diets are killing people? Lovely lovely question. And the final question up at the back there. Do fatty diet books, often not written by health professionals or anyone that's ever spoken to a patient, help or not help us deliver good public health messages? Can you, can you just repeat the first bit again? I just missed it. Do fatty diet books, often written by non-health professionals, help or not help us deliver public health messages? Diet books not written by me or other members of the well, panel are utterly <laughs> unhelpful. Maybe, maybe not written by people who understand the effect that bad science can sometimes have on their patients it is in actually, terms of being confused. Because I think the new, I'm speaking as a dietitian of many, many years, and I think many of the hypotheses in the last 30 or 40 years have made our patients not trust us, and I'm not sure that just avoiding fat or sugar or salt or anything has helped in the last 40 years, because we're fatter than ever, with more diabetes than ever, and less trust in health professionals, and we've just badmouthed every message. I don't know it's, if that it's actually it, it's a lovely question, and, and so we'll, we'll, we'll finish on that. Thank you, uh, Sarah. Can I can I mm. ask you about those issues then, particularly the, the food industry yeah. and the diet books? I'm strangely enough slightly with Gary here. Yeah. <laughs> Dangerous okay. territory though that may be, because I feel that actually there are many people within the diet uh, within the food industry who have tried and interesting i have a, a friend who's who is an industry food industry dietitian and she's been kind of tearing her hair out because her company um, which produces baby products and you know mothers want food that their child can have on the go had developed this had spent invested huge amounts of money in pure vegetable baby products which didn't have any additives didn't have anything else and they ended up having to pull them because people wouldn't buy them so i think to an extent Um, these are commercial companies and they have sometimes worked very well I think with industry if we think that for instance cornflakes contain 15% less salt than they did and we're, we're moving and that requires them all to work together um, there is an element of self-interest. They are commercial commercial organisations to an extent. I absolutely agree with you that you know they need to be called to account. But by the same token, they probably need to be called to account by the great British public. And when the great British public responds to Jamie Oliver's pleas by um, shoving fish and chips through the uh, through the, the the railings of schools, then I think you know we have our answer. And food companies also. I mean, they. They did low-fat yogurt, not because of great altruism, but actually it was cheaper than having uh, the, the full dairy brand because adding in other chemicals. So, yes, Gary's right that they were reacting to market, but they loved it. 
because this is another way they can make much more money and leverage, you know, get greater profits from this stuff. So if you remove that incentive, then they would stop it. So I think we've got to look at it. It's much more complex than just they're evil and, or they're just doing what the bidding is. But the more complicated, the more artificial the food, the more the margins these companies can make. And that's why we need to go back to trying to educate everyone to get back to real food and try and get the, the incentives there uh, for the public. So we've, we've had... Uh, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you. And we've, we've had... Uh, we've presented you with a very, very wide range of topics, just a, a, from healthy eating to particular aspects of weight loss. Clearly, we don't all agree, and yet there are areas of common ground. I'm curious to know who, as a result of this evening, has made a serious commitment to changing the way they will eat in some way. Can I get a show of hands? It's re- really interesting. So it's, it's that confusing. It's probably half the people in the room have managed to do it. Um, it's, it's, extre- it's extremely confusing um, data set. Um, can I just say thank you very much uh, to Gary in the US and to all our panellists. And thank you to you all. Thank you.